0: Stork
1: Talks. Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom.
2: The Storks have been part of Life in the Hague for centuries. Have you spotted one yet? Each
1: week, Stork Talks delves into a range of stories, news and anecdotes. And for the next hour, we'll take you under our wings as we discover the city of peace and justice. This is truly a special place to live, and we invite you to tune in and discover it with us each Thursday between 8 and 9 p.m. on 92.0 Den Haag FM. Yeah, and that brings us nicely into the first segment, the uh, Stalk of the Week. Last week we uh, heard
2: from the Nigerian businesswoman and entrepreneur Ebere Akadri, I hope i Did her justice and pronounce that correctly. Ibera was a successful restaurateur in Nigeria, but became involved with training trafficked girls here in the Netherlands. And uh, her work with this young, vulnerable women inspired her to start a foundation called Beauty in Every Life. And for those of our listeners who uh, got involved or are still looking to get involved after the the segment last week, you can sponsor a young person from Nigeria via Ibera's foundation, which, yeah, just... Great initiative. And and I think this week, so we have a very different and very difficult, but also a serious issue to talk about.
1: Indeed, Tom. So this week I spoke with the communications and press officer of the Levens Einde Clinic, Anarika Decker. So that translates as the end of life clinic, literally in English. And as the name suggests, it uh, provides the option to have euthanasia or organise euthanasia, if, if that is your wish. It is the only one of its kind in the Netherlands and it happens, just so happens, to be down the road from where I live. Uh, and when you go inside, it, it really feels more like a boutique hotel than a medical clinic. So I began by asking Anarika who started the Levens Einde Clinic and how it is funded.
0: Yes, well, the clinic was started about uh, six and a half years ago. By the right to die society and uh, that's an organization in the netherlands who uh, uh, supports people who wants uh, to be in control of their their own uh, life ending Mm -hmm. and so we found that uh, there was uh, no for some people they didn't have the possibility to receive euthanasia within the law because their own GPs didn't want to help them mm. and be to fill the hole in this uh, the Right to Die Society founded the Leefseinde Okay, and,
1: and who funds the Right to Die Society? I mean, is this a government funded no, thing? No,
0: uh, it's the medical uh, care system you call it oh, in English okay, yes. So in the beginning it was uh, donors mm. people who were really in favor of uh, such a clinic and uh, but soon enough, we started negotiating with the medical health system mm. care system. Mm. and then um, by now, last year we were uh, nearly nearly one hundred percent founded by the by the insurance company.
1: Are your doctors and nurses, the people who who are involved with your clinic? Are they given additional training?
0: Yes, when uh, before a doctor or a nurse uh, can start with the uh, Lesteiner clinic. Mm they get a 3 days uh, training mm. to get to know more about the euthanasia law mm. and the way we work at the Lausanne clinic and about the way euthanasia uh, should be Handled or or a research for for people if they can have euthanasia within the law, mm-hmm. so uh, the way they have to deal with it. Absolutely. Now you mentioned the law, and this we know that there
1: are requests for euthanasia laws to to be extended in the Netherlands. What are the clinic's opinion on that?
0: Yeah. Uh, first, let me say that we are called life clinic, but clinic. We don't actually have a mm. clinic. Because soon enough, when we started, we found that most people want to have euthanasia at their own homes. Okay. So there's no clinic here in The Hague, but there is an office. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we uh, find that we can work well within the law, mm-hmm. so we're not in favor of any... ex. Okay.
1: Okay. We know that requests for euthanasia are increasing. Uh, This is perhaps not surprising given an aging population. Mm -hmm. Are there any plans to establish more, well, clinics or offices such as these uh, within
0: the Netherlands? Uh, no, not really. Um, when we started, uh, the ideal situation in our uh, thoughts was yeah. that people would go to their own GPs yeah. uh, to, uh, to receive or to talk about the euthanasia request they have, and their own GP can do the research if it can be done within the law, and we would only be there if it was really necessary. Yeah. Now we find that uh, more people come to uh, the Leifsteiner clinic, and so, we, we have special products with uh, consultants uh, assisting general GPs, mm. um, so, so a GP will be better prepared to do a euthanasia research, mm. so they can advise them, they can help them, and also we have schooling for GPs, mm. so then uh, w- sometimes they find they are not experienced enough, they don't know the law well enough, mm. and we can help them with that because from our mission we would prefer for patients to be helped by their own general practitioner because uh, that's the person they know best and that's the person who knows them best.
1: Absolutely, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Why here in The Hague, this clinic or this office? <laughs> Do I you have know? No idea. And then finally, um, what sort of process? Is followed then if if someone wishes to to go forward with euthanasia? How would people imagine this process? Yes.
0: When somebody uh, wants to receive euthanasia, they can do a request through their GP or Mm -hmm. directly at the clinic. And then uh, we we contact the, after they've registered, Mm -hmm. we contact the person, the patient, and uh, we talk uh, with them about the request and we contact their general practitioner because uh, we want uh, first want to check if it's not possible that the general practitioner uh, does the research himself mm. secondly uh, we want to talk about the patient and we want to have access to the medical files because that's really uh, important for us if then still the request has to be done by the labcine clinic we uh, have a a team in the Netherlands somewhere because sometimes a request comes from Groningen right. sometimes from the south of the Netherlands whatever and we look for a team of a doctor and a an nurse it's mm. always a team of a doctor and a an okay. nurse to do the research for the request and that's always in the area where the patient lives. And then we start doing the research, and depending on the case, because sometimes it's people with cancer that can't be treated Mm. anymore, then usually it can be decided quite Mm. quickly if it can be done within the law or not. And uh, sometimes it's people like with a psychiatric background and Mm. then it usually takes uh, longer to do the research and to establish if Mm. a person can receive euthanasia within the law or not. And then in the end, it is decided that a person can either have euthanasia mm-hmm. or can't have. Okay. And if they can have, then it's uh, discussed within the team, a bigger team in the in the Leipzigne Clinic, mm-hmm. to see if there's any problems to be that that can arise. Mm-hmm. So then uh, after the, we have a go from this uh, team, mm-hmm. then the euthanasia can be performed, and okay. that's also done by the doctor of the team that has been doing the research and also important to know that part of the law the Dutch law is that an objective impartial an impartial impartial doctor give his opinion Mm. and uh, it should be done before it is decided if somebody can receive Mm. euthanasia or not Mm. and if it involves a psychiatric patient uh, not only an impartial doctor but also an independent psychiatrist should give his or her Opinion: mm, If euthanasia is mm. possible in this case,
3: mm. so
1: it is really quite a process, yes, um, and quite carefully orchestrated um, yes. at every stage. That's right. Thank you so much and I'm speaking with Anrika Decker who is the Press and Communications Officer for the Levens Einder Clinic right here in The Hague. And
2: like I said in the introduction I think it's a, a difficult topic but an important one at that to talk about and we were speaking about it a bit earlier before recording and we were sort of asking like what, what's the alternative is to say we'll have people well I think that's the discussion is either do you provide people with this opportunity and to basically make this decision themselves or or otherwise then what
1: Yeah I mean I agree Tom I mean I think well it does seem to differ between countries because the Netherlands has offered euthanasia for a number of years now and it's it's there along with uh, Switzerland Finland um some some other countries around around the globe and in fact yeah, interesting. I think in Canada and the US, because there's a more federal system, there are some states in those countries where euthanasia is legalized and others where it's not. But then you get a country like the UK, for example, where they've tried more than once to get through euthanasia legislation, and it's, it's, been, it's been stopped, it's been blocked. So it, it is still, for many people, I think it's a, yeah, it's a difficult issue perhaps.
2: Yeah, and I I think what's also interesting is it it does relate somewhat even to our theme that we did on the broadcast yesterday into the health thing and growing old. But there's the the euthanasia that we're talking about. And this clinic is more, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's for terminally ill or people who are of old age.
1: Well, yes, but I think I think Tom, well, because it's the only one of its kind in the Netherlands, uh, it does coordinate all sort of euthanasia cases. But as I think Anarika was at pains to point out, they have been trying and they continue to try. They really want it to be a sort of decentralized system where doctors around the Netherlands feel confident enough. Should one of their patients want euthanasia, they feel confident enough to then provide that process but understandably, I think there's still, and that's what Anarika was saying, there's still a lot of doctors out there, even in a country like the Netherlands, where they don't really feel confident to to go through the process or or they actually might have their own um, reservations, um, sort of moral or ethical reservations about it. And this is why this Levenseinde Clinic continues to, to play quite an important role. They have to assign doctors if your own doctor is not willing to help you.
2: Yeah, and I think what's interesting is um, and there's there's so many different sides to this argument and why people are for it, why some people are against it, why some countries are for it, why some people are against it. And I I think one of the best things that we can do is just talk about it and to at least be confident enough and to be open enough to to talk about this issue because it's, it's not disappearing if we don't talk about it. I mean, we were speaking about it earlier to say, well, if we're rejecting it because we just don't want to talk about people who are living in certain conditions due to a, a terminal disease or that that are living out their life in pain or in agony simply because there's nothing that that can be done and is that really what we what we want
1: no, I, I agree with you, Tom. It is, is an issue. It does need to be faced. I mean, I think the Netherlands has been, you know, it's, it, it's, it's been good like that. They have they have grappled with it. It's a difficult topic, but it still needs to be faced. Um, and I know just not so long ago, I think there was a discussion in the Tve Karma about a so-called suicide pill. Uh, and it's links back, as you said, Tom, to what we spoke about last night on our live Facebook broadcast, is this notion of wanting to live a healthy life for longer. But if your life is no longer healthy, and the quality of your life is very, very poor, then should you be forced to continue to stay alive? Uh, that does seem rather inhumane from my perspective. Uh, so the suicide pill was suggested that, that sort of everyone over 75 in the Netherlands would ha- have access to this pill. Now that is quite radical. It's
2: quite a statement, yeah.
1: And in fact, even even Anarika at the Levensende Clinique said that they they were not really in favor of extending the, the laws any further for euthanasia, which is interesting because they deal with it all the time. Well,
2: And I think that's one of the last things that I'd like to share on this, because what I love is you gave this example. You told me told me this story of the woman who said, well, basically she had everything arranged to her funeral and the, to, was going through the process of euthanasia. And then halfway through the process or throughout the process, she sort of realized like, hey, I'm having second thoughts. Perhaps that isn't, isn't what I want. And I think for me, Why that resonated with me so much is because it shows that by giving people the idea or the option, they might go through that process and through that process become more aware whether or not this is a conscious choice and whether or not this is exactly what it is they want. But if you don't give them that choice, you create a sense of powerlessness or a feeling of like, hey, I don't have anywhere to go with this feeling that I've been coping with or this this. Yeah, the, the, the lack of will to live and through these conversations i think you can figure out maybe it isn't speci- there's something that is bothering you there's something specific that is well in a, in a very chronic severe case that's of course different but maybe that you, you you manage to provide people with a process to at
1: least find out whether or not this is exactly what it, exactly what they want i agree i think it's all about options isn't it and choice always about choice i don't think we've heard the last of it put it that way
0: Stark dogs.
2: And as always, sorry, um, a bit on a, a bit of a different note, but the uh, the the coffee and tea must go on. And I know I know it, it was definitely time to dive into coffee this week.
1: I know, I know you're turning your focus to coffee and I am pleased about that because I'm a bit of a coffee lover myself, but you I think you've done justice to tea, Tom, with your exploration of matcha tea and then the ritual of the sort of English high tea, uh with Richard of Scallywags. But I have to say, if I do drink more coffee than tea. So so who did you speak with this week? Yeah, I dove a bit deeper into the, the coffee and tea
2: scene here in The Hague. And I spoke to an, an Italian franchise. It's a, a doppio. They're a small change, very orange, difficult to miss. The orange does really fit with the Netherlands, by the way. That's that's actually very suitable. And we spoke about the famous cultures of drinking coffee. When do you drink coffee, what type of coffee do you drink? So we spoke about the Italian and the Dutch culture. And uh, honestly, the owner was incredibly cheerful and incredibly passionate about coffee?
3: Well, Doppio is a franchise concept based on the Italian cuisine. Coffee is very important here. We have an uh, an Italian blend coffee. It's roasted for us, especially in Italy, just below Milan. And uh, the franchise concept has about 30 stores in uh, in, in Holland. So, so what makes the, the, the
2: roasting process and the fact that it's done below Milan so special?
3: So w- one thing that's always important it's it's the passion the love that the barista uh, gives the coffee that's that's really important second of course is the process of how the beans come here how they're dried Uh, that really determines love taste in, in coffee and well of course the the roasting process is also very important for the taste of coffee and Then the barista. Barista has the last finishing touch on on coffee, and uh, yeah, he's the one that makes the coffee taste delicious. So, do you have a, a favorite cup of coffee or type of coffee? Well, in the morning, I always start with uh, a cappuccino or a flat white, just to get the stomach used to the to the espresso. And then, from like the Italians, from like eleven o'clock, I just drink espressos.
2: So, so that's the real Italian coffee. That's the espresso.
3: That's the way the Italians drink their coffee, and a lot of Italians always drink it with a lot of sugar in it. I don't. So why did they do that, do you know? Why they drink so much sugar in their well, coffee? Well, I really don't know. It's, I think it's more about taste, and the espresso in it. Italy is, is pretty strong, pretty bitter. So I think they just yeah add some sugar to make it more drinkable.
2: So do you have any idea how much coffee Italians drink compared to,
3: to Dutch people, maybe? Well, I think the Italians drink a lot more coffee than the Dutch do. But the Dutch are coming up. They're drinking more coffee each day. So that's that's good for us also as as a coffee concept. So what do people
2: say when you recommend them real Italian coffee or when they taste real Italian coffee versus perhaps filter coffee as they call it here in Dutch?
3: Well, filter coffee is not that popular yet in Holland. It's also coming up. Filter coffee is a little bit more healthy than the espresso is. It has to do with uh, fats and all kinds of chemical stuffs that are in coffee. It's just the taste of espresso, and it's that moment, that moment you have with your friends to drink some coffee.
2: So, how? What is your your favorite experience when it comes to coffee? Like,
3: what for you are, are coffee moments that, that you remember? Well, for me, coffee moments are the yeah the, the time I started with making the coffees, discovering that there's. Such a large world behind coffee, that I didn't know of. So. so, so what were some of the biggest surprises
2: in this world? What what things did you figure out that you didn't realize were there in the coffee world?
3: Well, taste? Taste like coffee is like wine. Also, in wine, you have different kinds of tastes depends on the the grapes you use. Oh, well, coffee, it's it's basically the same. All the uh, the beans they have their own taste, and the way you process. The, the, the coffee yeah, that's the way you get the taste out of the coffee
2: yeah and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's two types of coffee beans you have the arabica and the robusta and it's the combination of two that gives flavor and then the roasting process so which steps determine the flavor of a good cup of coffee
3: well uh, it's, it's true You, you well, actually you have more than, than the two types of coffee but those two types are the, the most common used uh, coffee beans well, the, in the processing, it, it's when they they pick the coffee, the, the cherries, and it's the, the 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 beans that are in the cherries. Those are the coffee beans. When they're dried, you can dry them in uh, more ways to dry the uh, the, uh, the the coffee. And then you have the process of the drying. After that, you have the process of the uh, roasting of the coffee. After that, you have the brisa uh, making the coffees. So the different kinds of Processing determines the taste in your uh, in your coffee.
2: I think one thing that I saw you do earlier, which was amazing, is to draw
3: the little hearts in the coffee. Um, where did that come from? Uh, I don't know. It's just uh, to yeah to make it a little uh, even more. Like they always say here in Holland, the, the 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 eye always eats with you. So when things look nice, then it tastes better, probably so it's yeah well, it's, it's uh, they call it latte art, and you can make different kinds of figures in your in your coffee and uh, well, it 's just a matter of uh, trying and uh, practicing and uh, getting a course here of course <laughs> um
2: so are there still coffees uh, types of coffee varieties that you like to try that you, you haven 't tried yet
3: oh, there lots of coffees because the, 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 in a lot of countries they uh, they grow coffee and they process coffee and And every part of the world has his own kind of t- taste in the in the coffee me personally, I do like uh, also coffees that come from the s- South America so I like Colombian coffees and uh, and stuff like that because they have a little and, and also from the South of Africa and those coffees they have a little more uh, acidity in it for Dutch people that taste is quite difficult to get used to but I like it and uh, yeah I would Really love to drink more of those coffees.
2: I think that if people either want to experience the, the, the Doppio type of coffee or if they want to bring some coffee to you to try with you, and because I'm going to encourage them to do that as well, um, where can they find more information
3: or find you located? So we're located in, uh, in The Hague on the Frederik Hendrik Laan in uh, Statenkwartier come in you're here you're you're always welcome for a good cup of italian coffee but also we do have other stuff uh, like uh, a lunch uh, aperitivo it's all based on the italy so a little place in italy located in the sansocretti i want to thank you so much for joining me you're welcome
1: Yes, uh, Tom. I have to say, it did make me smile when he when he said that the most important part of making coffee was to do it with passion and love. <laughs> it was like it's also the first that thing is very said. Italian. Um, yeah, I, I just had to have a little a little giggle at that, but it's it's still nice to hear. Um, but I was also interested to hear his comment about the fact that, and he may well be right that Italians are bigger coffee drinkers than the Dutch. But I do believe that the Dutch are some of the biggest coffee drinkers in the world and there may be a history to that, and we were talking about that earlier, but certainly I I have, since I have moved to the Netherlands, there's been a lot of very good coffee shops and coffee places uh, where they do seem to take their coffee very, very seriously. Well, it's interesting, and I think that's also what he said,
2: is people, they drink very different types of coffee. So I think Dutch people, they're more likely to drink, like, cups of coffee or m- more coffee, if you look at specifically, like, the amount, like, the, the, the middle leaders or the, basically, leaders of coffee at that
1: point. With, probably with milk, quite a lot of milk, I would imagine.
2: With milk or, or however they consume it, whereas he said, well, the Italians should drink more uh, espresso. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that is much more, like, a smaller quantity, but caffeine-wise, that might be a different story. So coffee versus caffeine, it might be an interesting
1: thing to look at. True, true. And he also mentioned these different coffee beans, which I think is fascinating also because coming from South Africa, I know, and there's quite a lot of coffee grown in Africa. Uh, he also mentioned South America, but I, I also find that fascinating the way coffee can taste so different depending on on the beans and how they're prepared well absolutely absolutely and one thing that i'd like um and and that's
2: also something that i was curious uh, to tell you a bit more about is what he said as well is there's so many different varieties and flavors of coffee and that's true i think the best way to describe it is like he said coffee is like wine you're having depending on where it's grown depending on where it originates from you have certain flavors so there's a specific type of moody and it's um it's called the bucket list and they talk about one type of coffee, which is a kopi lua coffee. Have you ever heard of kopi lua coffee? I
1: hadn't until you mentioned it, Tom. It sounds quite strange.
2: Well, that's the interesting thing because kopi lua coffee is... and I don't know what time you're listening to this podcast. If I, if it's before dinner, we're going to keep it nice and clean. But basically, because they are a sort of fruit coffee and then the, the, the beans from that, those are the ones that you roast and that you process. So... This coffee is actually produced by going through the digestive tract and, and that gives it flavor. And yeah, and, but the interesting thing is, is um, it's, it's a very interesting discussion to see what a wide variety of coffee and how people are experimenting just like they do with wine.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think not long ago I saw an advertisement. I think that was before Corona kicked in, but I saw an advertisement for coffee tasting afternoon, just as you'd go on a wine tasting. I've never been on one, but I have to say that that, in, that would interest me. Yeah. I, the, the the animal, sorry, I just remembered
2: the animal is called the, the civet.
1: Oh, is a little civet, a little cat-like yeah, a, animal. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm, it just raises a lot of questions for me. It, indeed. <laughs> perhaps it raises more questions
2: than it answers. Yeah. Um, what I like, and, and I wanted to ask you this story. What for you is a, a coffee moment? What is your ideal coffee moment?
1: I don't know, but I normally drink coffee in the morning time. I don't know if that's psychological. You know, people go, oh, it gets me started for the day. I'm not sure. But I, I do like to have a cup of coffee in the morning. I don't drink too much coffee. I'm not one of these four or five cup a day people. But I, again, I did read somewhere just, just the other day that apparently, on average, the Dutch drink four cups of coffee a day, which is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the statistics indeed. On a, a regular day,
2: Dutch people, let's say the majority, drink three to four, which is about thirty-six percent. But there are people who drink seven or more cups of coffee. Wow. Yeah, and and indeed, how they rank in like globally, there's the Scandinavian countries that drink more. Wow. So Finland,
1: Norway, Iceland, Denmark, and then the Netherlands is fifth. Wow. And uh, kilos per capita. All right. Well, I look forward to your to your next uh, your next dive into the coffee world next week, Tom. Absolutely. Yeah. Stay tuned. I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe. And thank you for stalking with us this evening. Next week on Stalk Talks We'll focus on an interview with Lawrence Cock of the he is the head of the foreign direct investment uh, at the Hague Business Agency and he will talk a little bit about Brexit and how it's affecting business here in The Hague.
2: And I have the pleasure of talking to another coffee lover to further explore the coffee, uh, the topic of coffee and tea. He's actually an instructor and a barista, and he's going to explain a bit more about the process and how to get the best brew out of your cup of coffee and your beans.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. Thank you, everyone, for stalking with us this evening, especially after some of the... The restrictions continue, basically. Um, Please tune in again next week for more fun, frolics, and some new and timeless stories right here in the city of peace and justice.
2: Yeah. And if you'd like to check out our previous broadcast, you can always find that on the Facebook page or on our Instagram, uh, Stalk Talks. There you can see some photos of some of the places that we visited and that we continue to visit. So stay tuned. And then we hope to see you back either on our next broadcast on Thursday or otherwise. Stay tuned for the podcast coming out next week. Mm -hmm.